You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank you this morning for your love and that you see everything that goes on in this world. You, you know every hurt and everything that happens in our lives. And so we pray for Vincent and Linda that you would comfort them this morning, that in this and through this they would be able to witness of your love and of your constant care in their lives so that others might see and trust Christ for their salvation. And Lord, we pray this morning as we look at your word, it's a marvelous and wonderful thing you did when you gave us your word. And we're so grateful as we, we look this morning at, among other things, how to properly celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of the great sacraments you gave to us that helps us remember from time to time the great sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made for his children, for the church, for the elect. And so this morning as we dig into your word, we ask for your wisdom, we ask for your blessing, and we ask for your encouragement for us in our daily lives to live it, to believe it, and to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Could I just shut off? Oh, you know what I've got to do? This thing. There, now the NSA can't hear us. So, two weeks ago, we, um, we finished up with verse, I believe it was verse 16, which I believe we spent the entire morning on, uh, dealing with the, the cup of blessing and the bread. So we had something of an introduction to the Lord's Supper, and there'll be a, a great deal more in chapter 11, but I, didn't, I wanted to finish this up. Jim suggested that I've told you what we don't believe and why, and you already knew that, but it was a, an interesting study. So this morning we're going to look at, at least to begin with, what we do believe about the, the Lord's Supper and why. Um, unfortunately, around everything that happens in life, man seems to be able to interject superstition. So we have superstitions about just about everything. Um, as a child growing up, I remember one time that my grandmother made my grandfather turn around at Dufort Road because a black cat, or turn around at Heath Lake Road because a black cat crossed the road and she made him go to Sandpoint through Priest River. So, yes, so some people really, really are under the control of superstitious elements. Others of us, not so much, um, but we have our own superstitions. I actually got in trouble with my grandmother one time when she, she told me, you don't go to bed with your socks on because you'll go blind. That was, has anybody else heard that one? Well, I asked her, I said, so grandma, does that mean if I go to bed with my glasses on, I'll get athlete's foot? I got in trouble. Um, unfortunately, those are somewhat, or fortunately, those are somewhat harmless superstitions. But when we, when false teaching comes, builds up around biblical doctrines, biblical truths, it can, it can hamper people 
from experiencing and properly understanding the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we talked about two weeks ago, these false ideas, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, that Jesus is actually physically, literally present in the cup and in the, in the plate, <coughs> those can uh, af affect the way people worship, affect the way people think about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I, I, as, I, as Jim asked me to, to talk about how the proper view, yeah, yeah, we, it's, it's, it's important that we all understand how this came to be and why and, and uh, what the Lord has in it for us. The Lord's Supper is an incredible special time. Um, I never really gave it much thought for most of my Christianity. It was just a time when we celebrated the, the death, burial, and resurrection, especially um, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I got it. But it, it didn't mean a terrible lot to me. For whatever reason, I, I just didn't think it through, I guess. It's only in the last 10 years or so where I've really begun to realize what he did. And it's, it's not rational from a human perspective for someone to do that for someone else, let alone the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at uh, the last part of chapter or the last, we'll revisit verse 16, I guess is what I'm saying. Again, uh, this will be some sort of a record for us. We'll have about 15 pages on one verse, but that's good. That's fine. It's an important verse. And again, we will look at this again when we get into chapter 11, where Paul deals with how the Corinthians were actually messing it up. But let's, let's go ahead and read through chapter 10 uh, up to, I'm going to say maybe we might make it to verse 20 today. We'll read to verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 through verse 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
Are we, we are not stronger than he, are we? So we looked, and I'll just do a quick, uh, a quick review at um, transubstantiation, where the Council of Trent sub summarized the Catholic faith by teaching that. Let's see if I can get back to that. The Council of Trent summarized that the Catholic faith, because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Later we looked at the fact that... Um, there's no indication the words were meant to be taken literally, and we went through scripture after scripture indicating that, that Jesus often used metaphors. He called himself the door. He called himself the bread of life. Um, he called himself other things. Uh, I am the door. I am the resurrection of life. I am the true vine. Those were to give us a picture of what can happen, but when a believer, especially in the vine, when a believer trusts Christ and becomes part of of the church, we draw our sustenance from the, the root, from the source, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We can all see that. Metaphors are good things. They're bad things when they're taken to, when they're taken to an, un, in, an unintended um, result, if you will, or, or taken too far. In chapter 6 of John, Jesus clearly told the disciples, he was speaking in spiritual terms, John 6, 63, he said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and, and are life. During the upper room communion, Scripture refers to the elements as bread and wine. So we saw that. It specifically referred to them as bread and wine. Later, Paul explained that to the Corinthians, um, how they were violating the communion dinner, which was commonly partaken of by churches. He describes the elements as bread and the cup, which is clearly a container with wine in it. Further, nothing in the Gospels nor in the Epistles indicate that the Apostles ever concluded that the elements that were partaken of in the communion service were anything but bread and wine. Uh, none of the Apostles nor the disciples ever worshipped the bread nor the wine. And the, the Catholic Church calls the congregants to actually worship the bread and the wine. Worship is reserved for the Trinity, period. Angels told people to get up, get up, don't worship me. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Animals are not to be worshipped. Nothing else is to be worshipped except for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not bread, not wine. Not even bacon. So none of the apostles ever worshipped it. The Mass supposedly reenacts the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, and then further, this view was a violation of Levitical law, which was certainly still in effect prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as, the, for as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, nor the life of all flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. The Catholic view is that this is the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore they're consuming it in somewhat of a cannibalistic way. There were counter-arguments which were dealt with, and we looked at all the different things that it violated through a series of, of uh, nine aspects that it violated. And we ended up with the conclusion of the matter is very simple. 
The cup of thanksgiving and the bread we break are symbols of the once-for-all awesome sacrifice of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, which purchased redemption for his elect children forever. When we celebrate communion, when the Corinthians celebrated communion, they and we should look back at this once-for-all incredible work of the Son of God in thanksgiving and adoration. <clears throat> That's where we ended. So what, what do we actually believe and, and why? Well, at the time that this was becoming something of, a, of an issue, and, and here's another thing, I didn't go through it, but this all didn't coalesce until the 13th century. It was in the 1200s when these kinds of things began to actually be put into place. So for 1200 years, people were celebrating communion wrong? I don't think so. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever been sitting and listening to someone hopefully not me, but if it is, please tell me, who said a series of things that were patently incorrect, and you knew it, and you knew what the correct steps were. You knew what, what the proper understanding was. That's what was going on at this time when Luther and Zwingli and uh, several others were dealing with this issue. Most of churchgoers, they knew how to celebrate communion. They knew it was symbolic. And they didn't get involved, they just kind of backed away from it and, and, and did their own thing, celebrated it in a symbolic way as it was intended. Uh, and what happened was there was a fellow named Ulrich Zwingli. Um, there's a proper view of the Lord's Supper and it was promulgated by Ulrich Zwingli. It should be noted, however, that Zwingli simply gave voice to what most people believed at the time in the first place. It was noted that there were actually priests who did not believe, nor nor promulgate what the Vatican was commanding. Zwingli did not see, back back up here, he did not see the need for a sacramental um, union in the Lord's Supper because of his modified understanding of the sacraments. According to Zwingli, the sacraments serve as a public testimony of a previous grace. Therefore, the sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing or a sign of a grace that has been given. For Zwingli, the idea that the sacraments carry any salvific efficacy in themselves is a return to Judaism's ceremonial washings that lead to the purchase of salvation. Whereas Luther sought to prune the branches, prune the bad branches off the tree of Roman Catholic sacramentalism, Zwingli believed the problem to be rooted at least partly in sacramentalism itself. The only way to legitimately resolve Roman excess was to reinterpret the nature of the sacraments. Pruning the tree was not enough. Pulling the tree up from its roots was the only action that could actually fix the problems. So, applying his modified, applying his modified understanding of the sacraments to the Eucharist led Zwingli to affirm its primary purpose as the proclamation of salvation and the strengthening of faith in the hearts of believers. Let me ask you this. When we, when we, when Jim comes up on the Sunday that we serve, we, we take communion and he reminds us through 1 Corinthians 11, of what the Lord has done and how the sacrament is to be observed, don't you again think about the sacrifice that the Lord has done for you? It's, it's a good remembrance. It's, a, it's one of those sweet, sour things where you, he died, and that's the hard part. But what his death purchased is beautiful and wonderful, and we remember that. And that was the purpose. And, and just like you, the average believer in the 1400s, 1500s, 14 and 1500s, they got it. They knew what was going on, and Zwingli gave word to it. Zwingli insisted 
that the biblical text taught that the Lord's Supper was a sign and that to make it something more violated the nature of the sacrament. However, this caution did not keep Zwingli from strongly affirming a spiritual presence of Christ in the Eucharist brought by the contemplation of faith. What Zwingli could not accept was a real presence that claimed that Christ was present in his physical body with no visible bodily boundaries. He said, I have no use for that notion of a real and true body that does not exist physically, definitely and distinctly in some place, and that sort of nonsense got up by word triflers, close quote. Zwingli's theory of the Lord's Supper should not be viewed as an innovation without precedent in church history. Zwingli claimed that his doubts about transubstantiation were shared by many of his day, leading him to claim that priests did not ever believe such a thing, even though most all have taught this or at least pretended to believe it. Had Zwingli's modified view, modified doctrine of the real presence been an innovation, it probably not it would probably not have been so eagerly accepted by his parishioners. The symbolic views spread rapidly because Zwingli had given voice and legitimacy to an opinion that was already widespread. In Zurich, the Mass was abolished in 1525. The Lord's Supper was celebrated with a new liturgy that replaced the altar with a table and tablecloth, something like what we do up here on Communion Sunday. The striking feature of the Zwinglian observance of the sacrament was its simplicity. Because the bread and wine were not physically transformed into Christ's body and blood, there was no need for spurious ceremonies and pompous rituals. The occasion was marked by simplicity and reverence with an emphasis on its nature as a memorial. And that is as it should be. And it is a reminder to us of the sacrifice of the Son of God on our behalf when we celebrate it. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are symbolizing the death of, the, of Christ just as he told us to do. We are acknowledging the benefits of that death for us individually. Christ's death was not for a corporate church, although it ends up being a corporate church. It was for you and for you and for you and for you individually. One at a time, step by step, the church is built of people, of individuals. And it's a, it's a wondrous thing. Governments don't do that. Since we're on a government bashing system, started by some guy preaching in Ecclesiastes. I won't mention a name, but his initials. Pardon me? Speak for yourself. I'm speaking for myself. Anyway, governments don't do that, but the Lord does that. He saves people. He saves Lanny, and he saves Jim, and he saves Deidre, and he saves Thomas, and he knows you by name. It's not, and, it's, and we celebrate that once a month. Um, we are recognizing Christ's love for us individually. We are affirming that all of the blessings of salvation and eternity have been reserved for us individually. And we are affirming our faith in Christ. The Reformers argued well that the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper do not change into the body and blood of Christ, nor do they somehow contain the body and blood of Christ, transubstantiation nor consubstantiation. They symbolize the body and blood of Christ, and they give a physical sign a visible sign that Christ himself is truly present, as he said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Why wasn't that mythologized? So that wherever there were two or three people, some superstition would proclaim that Christ was bodily present there as well. I don't know why not. Calvin said this, By the showing of the symbol of the thing itself, <laughs> By the showing of the symbol of the thing itself, by the showing of the symbol, the thing itself is also shown. Thank you for 
being patient with me. For unless a man means to call God a deceiver, he would never dare assert that an empty symbol is set forth by him. Therefore, if the Lord truly represents the participation in his body through the breaking of bread, there ought not to be the least doubt that he truly presents and shows his body. And the godly ought by all means to keep this rule. Wherever they see these symbols appointed by the Lord, to think and be persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. For why should the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his body except to assure you a true participation of it? Yet in contradistinction to the Catholic teaching and Lutheran teaching, Calvin asserted that to perpetuate the myth of the body of Christ being present in any way would detract from his heavenly glory. He said, but we must establish such a presence of Christ in the supper as may neither fasten him to the element of bread nor enclose him in bread, nor circumscribe him in any way, all which things it is clear detract from his heavenly glory. And so, we may clearly say that the bread and wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ, but he is also spiritually present in a special way as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Last, we should deal with who should participate in the Lord's Supper. Only those who are saved with baptism as a strong encouragement and who have examined themselves before the sacrament. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five through 30. In the same way, Paul said, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. It is clear Paul was, te- was speaking to, dis- to believers, as was Jesus in the upper room. For this reason, the communion service is reserved to the elect. <coughs> Baptism is identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and is a statement to the world that one is a Christian. For this reason, as well as for many others, new believers should be encouraged to be baptized, before, uh, period, and before taking communion. I do not believe that the lack of baptism precludes one from the Lord's Supper, because to prevent someone from taking the Lord's Supper would be to acknowledge that they were not one of Christ's own. It is well to urge new believers to become baptized as soon as possible for many reasons, this one not the least. Third, verse 28 clearly contemplates self-examination. It is better for someone who upon such examination realizes he has not dealt with something properly to avoid the Lord's Supper at that time. Go and deal with the issue and then be prepared for it the next time it is offered. And that's a good thing, a worthy thing for someone to recognize that he or she isn't prepared for the Lord's Supper. They need to deal with something. They need to go to a brother they've offended or a sister they've offended. They need to follow the the prescription of Scripture and and deal with these things in their lives. Undealt with sin. Confess and be be freed from it. Be uh, healed from it. 1 John 1, 9. Um, Verse 28 clearly contemplates, and so we said that. Who should administer the Lord's Supper? There's no clear scriptural teaching on this, but it would seem appropriate that the pastor, elder leadership of the church should at least be involved. Scripture does not also tell us how often the Lord's Supper should be celebrated, but just that, as often as we do it, we do it in remembrance of Christ. And so, the principle is clear, uh, given to us, laid down in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 30, and here in chapter 10. But how we apply it, 
can be left up to individual bodies as long as they stay true to the clear intent of Scripture. One final historical note. Luther and Zwingli came to agreement on 14 of the 15 articles of Marburg, but they could not come to agreement on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The colloquy of Marburg was an important de a debate on the Lord's Supper held in Marburg, Germany. Uh, as an aside here, today it's so settled in the, in the believing church that we, we don't even think about it. But this was a serious issue at this time. And uh, there was deep division, deep, deep hurt and deep division that occurred. And unfortunately, that is often how it is when superstition arise, arises in the church, when false teaching arises in the church and is, giving a, is given a platform equal, co-equal with proper exposition of Scripture. It causes, it can lead to division. So back to this. Uh, an important debate on the Lord's Supper held in Marburg, Germany on October 1 through 4, 1529, between the reformers of Germany and Switzerland. It was called because of a political situation, a political, who to thunk. In response to a majority resolution against the Reformation by the Second Diet of Spire, April 1529, the Landgrave, that's a, uh, an owner of land and a, a person in charge of a, a tract of an area, like a, an, uh, a governor, essentially, a small governor. The Landgrave, Philip of Hesse, sensed that the Catholic rulers might proceed to subdue the Protestants by force and was convinced that a political alliance was the answer. Since the Lutherans insisted on a common confession as the basis of confederation, Philip called the colloquy to settle the controversy concerning the Eucharist, which had been dividing the reformers since 1524. There was fear of armed resolution of this issue. Armed resolution of this issue. The leading participants at the meeting, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, John Ocalampadius, Ocalampadius, Oc that's a cool name. Why did his mother name him that? She must not have liked him. Martin Bucer and Huldrych Zwingli, or Ulrich Zwingli, had preliminary discussions and then had held four sessions in the presence of the Landgrave Philip. Duke Ulrich of Württemberg delegates from the participating territories and up to 60 guests. You might wonder about the pronunciation there. I actually worked on that word four or five times. I had it down before I stood up here and butchered it. Anyway, the point at issue in the debate concerned the nature of Christ's presence in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. Christ had said, this is my body, when instituting the Eucharist, and Luther defended the literal understanding of the statement. Zwingli contended that the Eucharist was a symbolic memorial rite, and he was willing to accept the doctrine of the spiritual presence of Christ in the sacrament. Luther and Zwingli believed that their difference could not be worked out, but Bucer, a member of the delegation from Strasbourg, who spoke at the end of the colloquy, believed they could possibly be reconciled. After discussions broke down on October 3rd, Luther, at, at the Landgrave's request, prepared the 15 Articles of Marburg, based on articles later called the Articles of Schwabach, prepared at Wittenberg before Luther had departed for Marburg. The first 14 articles stated the usually accepted common doctrines of German and Swiss South German Reformations, which had not been discussed at the, at the colloquy. The 15th article stated that at present, we are not agreed as to whether the true body and blood of Christ are bodily present in the bread and wine. The articles were discussed, revised, and sent, signed by the theologians and were accepted by the Landgrave as a statement of Protestant belief. Some material for these articles was later included in the Augsburg Confession of, Lutheran, of uh, Lutheranism. One final note. 
All of this would have been familiar to the Israelites who often celebrated with a meal. Eating together had special significance for them, and in the New Testament era it had special significance also because of the celebration of food and fellowship was emphasized in the pagan feasts as well. It was this idolatry, getting back to the text of 1 Corinthians, that Paul was exhorting the Corinthians to flee. Eating together had special significance, especially in those days, far more apparently than it does today. And so that's why he said earlier, he said, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Well, to tie this all up, to celebrate the Lord's Supper outside of the prescription given to us by Scripture is idolatry. We're not celebrating the Supper of the Son of God. We're celebrating the Supper of some, something we've concocted in our minds. We have clear information Christ said, this is my body, take, eat, this is my blood, drink, it is a, and, and the, this is the New Testament. And he did it for us, he did it for us individually, it is a symbol of what he did, and it is a special symbol. And I, I guess I can end there, um, and then we'll get into the one bread, because then Paul, actually Paul reverses the order, did you notice that? He talks about the wine first, and then about the bread, in verse 17. But are there any questions, any concerns? Did I, was it helpful? You got a lot of history. And uh, it's always amazing to me what, what we can work up to argue over, um, especially in situations where Scripture is pretty clear. And uh, when you study it as a unit, when you study it and let Scripture comment on itself. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper delightedly and with a, a feeling of blessedness knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself provided these elements for us. Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Ephesians 4.4, 4. there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. John 13.34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 1 Corinthians 1.10, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 2 Corinthians 13.11, finally, brethren, rejoice and be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Hebrews 12.14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 14.17-19, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And first, and Colossians 3, 13 through 15, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul often encouraged the churches to seek unity. Jesus himself exhorted unity among believers. Division has always been a problem in the church. The Lord and the apostles taught unity often. 
The communion table is a place of unity. And the symbolism of the bread being one loaf, which we all partake of, demonstrates that the Lord himself, being one, gives of himself to individuals. It was common in New Testament times for the communion bread to be one loaf from which each was served. We don't do that here. We don't have a big loaf up here where everybody tears off a piece. But that's how it was done in those days. Again, the symbol is the same as we, as we attempt to commemorate, as we don't attempt, as we commemorate the Lord's Supper. Each and every believer is unified <clears throat> with each and every other believer through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is the peace of Christ that is to rule in our hearts, though, and the peace of Christ is, a, is that peace that he gives to us which will never compromise biblical truth. Our unity should never be at the expense of the truth of Scripture. How we deal with those differences of, of scriptural understanding is very important as well. How we treat one another when we have a difference of opinion about Scripture is incredibly important. But it is important to recognize that God never, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, none of the apostles ever called us to a peace which compromises biblical truth. So, far more important that we learn how to exposit and share biblical truth with one another in a manner that persuades. And if the persuasion cannot happen, then maybe there will have to be in some measure a division and a calling out. But every effort should be expended to maintain the peace that God has called us to. And Paul teaches on it often, very often. Since there is one bread, we hear them in there, one body, and we all partake of the one bread. Any questions about that verse? Verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Paul again uses Israel to demonstrate a truth. The Old Testament sacrifice system was designed not only to keep the Israelites apprised of their need for forgiveness from Jehovah, it was also designed to bring them into fellowship with the Lord. As they gave their sacrifices, they shared in everything that was involved with the offer, and that included the work that was done on the altar. Their sacrifices provided food for the priests, as well as a propitiation in a partial way for their sins, and brought them back into fellowship with Jehovah. When they brought their offerings, some of it was burned as a sacrifice, some of it was eaten by the priests, and then some was eaten by those who offered it. There was involvement between the penitents and the priests, the penitent and Jehovah, the priest and Jehovah. Indeed, everyone was involved with everyone else, just as in communion. All believers are united with each other. All who partook of the sacrifices were demonstrating their allegiance to the God of the altar. The God of the altar, the God who was behind the meal that was provided. And that's why later on when Paul says you cannot you cannot partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord at the same time. It gives us, gives us an indication into the mindset that was going into this as he penned these verses or, or dictated these verses. Look at the nation Israel. Any questions about verse 18? Verse 19, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrifices to idol, that, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Earlier in chapter 8, Paul reminded the Corinthians in verse 4 of that chapter that there is only one God and that idols are nothing. He is about to give the Corinthians information and truth about just what was actually happening in those pagan temples. For while the idol itself was nothing, to those who worshipped it, it had great meaning. 
The sacrifices that were given to that idol, while they were also nothing, nevertheless had great significance to the officers, to excuse me, to the offerers of the sacrifice. Perception is often more important than reality in the eyes of those who would pervert the truth. The case here is such that if a Christian is caught eating the idol meat, it would imply that idolatry is acceptable. Not to eat the meat would imply that the idol is real. Paul will deal with this in a very effective way. <clears throat> These false gods do not exist, says Paul, and the sacrifices to them are nothing. They mean nothing. However, there is something behind the idol and therefore substance to the offering of the sacrifice. The idol itself is wood or marble or stone or, or some other earthly component. But what the pagans thought was behind that idol was what was concerning to Paul. No, he says. So let me reread verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. The sacrifices that the Gentiles make are to the spiritual beings behind the idol. The demons. In the same way that a partaker of a table is a sharer of the truth of that table, so the Corinthians, who would participate in the idol celebrations in the temple, would actually become sharers in demons. Now, they may not fall under the power of the demon, nor worship it, but because they are partaking of a celebration for that demon, they have become a partaker maybe unintentionally, hopefully unintentionally, of the demon itself. They are sharers in the altar of the God that is behind that idol. And Paul would not have them in any way, shape, or form be associated with demons. The Israelites did this as well. In Deuteronomy chapter two, 32, Moses said this, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Um, Jeshurun was a, another term for Israel, a beloved term for Israel at the time. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. And these were the, 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 the demons behind the idols of the day. And people thought they were gods. The pagans of Paul's time in first century Corinth thought that the, the demons that were behind these stone idols or wood idols or whatever were actually gods. And I don't remember, I, I read an article one time that talked about how many gods the Romans had. It was a lot. It wasn't as many as India, but it was a lot. They had gods for everything. Um, we've talked about that before. The word sharer means, is the, everyone's heard, at least most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the, the koinonia word, the communion word. That's what this word is. It is a partner, associate, a comrade, a companion, a sharer in anything. Uh, and, and we understand how this works. Um, <clears throat> we avoid places that will implicate us in things that we don't believe in. We don't go there. Uh, now, there may be opportunities where you have to if you're going to get a fire extinguisher and the nearest one is, is in a... How would you, what would you do if the nearest fire extinguisher was in a brothel? Let the car burn? Probably not. But the point is, these were people who were partaking of the table of the demon. That's a little bit different than an instantaneous necessity of such. 
They were sharers, sharing in the worship, partakers of with demons. That's what this word means. Uh, the original word uh, comes from that whole idea, a companion, a partner, a long-term sharer, not an incidental. This is something that people would misunderstand if they saw a Corinthian Christian regularly partaking of the table of the idols. They would assume, I didn't know they were idol worshipers. Um, the word used for share is a very strong word indicating close communion. In fact, it is the word that is often translated communion. Christians should not be seen as communicants with demons. Frankly, those who were worshiping the idols never intended to worship demons. They had a false view of gods and goddesses, and because of that false view, they were taken in by demonic powers, and so they worshiped them. And that's often how it is. Uh, it's the unintended consequences sometimes of false doctrine. It leads you, yes, Robert. Yes. Yes. Much to my dismay, I'm probably going to be vilified for this, but fine, be that as it must. If it is not following the prescription of Scripture, if I am worshiping something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, I am participating in idolatry, pure and simple. Next question. Thank you for asking that. Sometimes it's not that I'm chicken to address stuff, I never think of it. Um, that is not to say that when we go to worship, witness to our precious Catholic friends that we say something like, I'm not even going to say it because people may listen to this, but you know what we shouldn't be saying. We need to persuade, at least to start, we need to persuade. We're going to, yes? Oh, thanks a lot, Jay. <laughs> Did you know it was snowing at our house this morning? I have avoided those wet. If you're invited to a Catholic wedding, I guess what, I, and I didn't do it correctly. I should have asked questions. I should have been more persuasive. I should have been kinder, but I didn't go. I said, you know, I, I can't participate in, a, in, a, in an improper celebration of the Lord. Will there be a mass at this wedding? Aren't there usually? Yeah. For me, I'm talking for me. I actually have missed several weddings that are, of people that I dearly love and still do and still have a good relationship with, still. Uh, but uh, for those very reasons, some of those very reasons. Any question, Any uh, comments on that? Yes, Lanny. Okay, just for your own, your own well-being, though, that was not a participation in the table of demons. And in many cases, you would find maybe these Corinthians, I can picture a Corinthian with his new teaching, but not thinking it through. Going into the temple, sitting down, and, and they start doing the pagan ceremony for the demon. He goes, I used to do this. What is wrong with me? I'm never going to do this again. And, and he, maybe he didn't get up and leave, but he never went back. That's as good a response to the teaching of the Scripture as getting up and walking out. So, you have to think these things through ahead of time. We're not going to get any farther today. Any other comments about this? This is a hard one. When, when a clear teaching of Scripture tells me that I can't participate in something that my friends are doing. And we have a lot of that in today's world. We're being required to participate in esteeming lifestyles that are unbiblical. We can't do it, brothers and sisters. How we don't do it is so important, Robert. Would you allow me to stand up during the Mass and give the clear scriptural teaching on what the Mass is so that they will no longer be doing it unintelligently? No, we can't let you do that. 
I can't come. Yeah. Yeah, sure it would, but I'm guessing that the congregant wouldn't want you doing it either. So that may not be the most intelligent response I've ever given to something, but it occurred to me. Um, just, what's the word I'm looking for? Dedication and um, intensity of devotion and uh, personal sincerity do not necessarily mean that what I'm doing is scriptural. It just means that I'm devoted to it, I'm sincere about it, and I'm dedicated to it. Yes, that would be a good response. Share the gospel. Um, you and I know, both know, I mean, for, really quickly, when I get unruly children in my store, I know that in three minutes, I can't undo 168 hours a week of poor training. So I don't go into how to rip, properly rear a child. I just, yesterday, I spent quite a bit of time keeping a little, little toddler from running out into the street. I didn't get, take his dad aside and say, all right, young man, you need to have some exp explanation and some training about how to be a proper father. You're going to kill your kid. And it's going to be your fault. And, you know, I, I didn't do that. I just stood in the door and played with the little boy and while other customers saw what was going on. You, you follow what I'm saying? Sometimes you can't do the whole, you can't give them the whole enchilada, but you can give them a tortilla. Well, that was a good one, wasn't it? What do you think? Can, can we footnote that? Yeah, okay. Give them the, yeah, give them the gospel. That's a good one. That's a good one to start with. Tell them you love them. Let them know you love them. Let them know you care for them. Let them know that, that you're not, not doing this because you don't like them. You just can't. And here's why. And sometimes, sometimes it can lead to conversations that will open things up to uh, great blessing. Because we never know what the Lord's doing with that in people's lives when we do that. Uh, we're going to stop here. Oops, I don't have a watch anymore. Um, what's today? The ninth. So next week, if, unless, oh no, wait, next week is Easter Sunday. So we will be, Resurrection Sunday. So we will be celebrating the resurrection, which we've been talking about the death and the burial, and I, I appreciate that, but I really like the resurrection. It's like the, it's like the answer to a bad dream. When you wake up and it's all good again. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, which we won't exposit today, but it says, you cannot, for those who are, sincere about their belief and persuaded that it's the truth, but it isn't. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the demons. You cannot partake of the table, the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, no matter how sincere you are. Let's close in prayer. Father, you've given us truth. Sometimes for us, it's hard truth. For you, it's never hard truth. You created it. You are the author of truth. But for us, sometimes it's a difficult thing. And so I sense, and I didn't just because I do, nothing special about that, that coming from this discussion this morning, there may be opportunity for us to witness to others who are in some way, shape, or form living out some idolatry. Help us to be kind, considerate, loving, devoted, but firm and persuaded of the truth of the Word of God. And Lord, we just thank you that you have given us this truth, that we can stand on it, that it will never be changed, it will never be swept out from under us, that you are the rock of our salvation and the rock of doctrine from which we can draw strength. And we thank you in that, for that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.